This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. That means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, this is Rob. And when I'm not busy regulating the transmission rates of our public utilities, I'm stacking Benjamins. Yeah. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today is the first day of Burning Man, everybody. You'd think with all of these men burning in the desert, there'd be a money-making opportunity out there some way. I'm going to think about that one, but while I do... We got a great guest today who's going to help us retire early with real estate. Please welcome Coach Chad Carson. Plus, in our headline segment, financial advisors usually advocate buying a used car, but which are best? A recent Kiplinger piece had some answers. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky caller, answer a second letter from a listener, and still save time for my trivia. And now, two guys you won't find at this year's Burning Man because they're here with you, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Out in the desert versus being here with you, I'll take here. Hey, kids. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And welcome back to Monday it's so fun ushering in another week with our Stacky Benjamins family and the number one member of the Stacky Benjamins family across the card table, Mr. OG. I thought I was your number two. <laughs> one million dollars. Yeah, that doesn't not as much as you think it was. Do you know what's funny about that? We were talking about that the other night at game night. Some of these references, like your Austin Powers reference, what's the age there's like this age where somebody's just going to give you a glossed overlook. Like I was talking to Richie yesterday about this Hall and Oates song. He had no <laughs> idea who the hell Hall and Oates were. No yeah. clue. He's like, who's doing what with Oates? Why are you hauling them? Where are you putting them? Well, we were talking to Cheryl about that. And, 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 and I said, tell Cheryl the name of the band you don't know. He goes, he goes, uh, uh, something like Oat Brand or something. I don't know. I'm like, wow. Oates. Yeah. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. One of the biggest bands of the 80s. Richie has no clue. Boy. Yeah, it's a different world. All them whippersnappers out there. 
<laughs> we got a fantastic show today, OG, because Chad Carson, as Doug said earlier, is here. We're talking real estate. And Chad, of course, is the man when it came to real estate. We're going to talk about his story, how he got started. We'll also, I'm sure, ask him about some tips that people can use if they are digging into the real estate market and maybe maybe going to try to retire with real estate as the backbone of financial independence for them. But first, another backbone to your independence can be reading our Stacker newsletter, which comes out almost once a week. The Stacker is our thoughts about financial planning, thoughts about things in the press, issues that we don't have enough time to go over in depth here on the show. And for things like our Stacky Benjamins tour, you'll get all the details there at the Stacker, stackybenjamins.com forward slash Stacker to get there. Also going to spend a little time today, OG, and talk about our tour. We're headed out on the road. If you're somebody who's in Orlando, Kansas City, or Detroit, or you're within shouting distance, as mom says, of those places, come join us. We'll be in Orlando at the Improv Comedy Club on September 25th. And then Kansas City, two weeks later, we'll be there October 9th. And then two weeks and one day later, we'll be in Ferndale, just north of Detroit at the Go Comedy Improv Theater in Ferndale. Tickets are on sale everywhere now. StackyBedjamins.com forward slash tour for more details. Thanks to two organizations. We have to thank Bloom for sponsoring the tour and also TIAA for sponsoring the tour, allowing us to come see you if you're in those three fine cities. Can't wait to go see a lot of our friends around the country, OG. Can't wait to get out of the basement see our friends across the uh, across the country get a little airline miles build up my american airlines bank account <laughs> maybe some uh, marriott points and hang out with you in person some more cuz i don't hang out with you enough yeah we don't sit here enough recording these things but it certainly is fun we love philadelphia we didn't do a show in philly but it was so great meeting a lot of you and uh, we're going to do the show. If you can hang out with us afterwards, by the way, in all those three locations, we're going to be out in uh, out in the hall chat. We're going to have an after party. Well, I just found out that in Kansas City, Kansas City, they have a nice little bar area outside where we can sit and chat for a while. But also in Kansas City, that is Tech Week, and there's a great fintech startup festival that's happening then. And we're going to have a lot of these fintech people there. I just found this out yesterday. Oh, cool. We'll be, so if you're in Kansas City and you want to see some of the latest and greatest fintech stuff, that's going to be there. If you're in Orlando, you're going to meet a lot of your favorite bloggers. Podcasters will be there because it's the day before FinCon. They're coming to see us. Steve Stewart also going to be in both of those locations. If you want to, mm -hmm. Steve, we don't get take out with enough. And in Detroit, we have one of the best storytellers in the nation, Shannon Kaysan, who's going to be there with us. We also have Brad Lark, who makes our swag, is going to be our Tonight Show band, in quotes, uh, there. By the way, our band in Kansas City, Tracy Phobe's son, 11-year-old guitar phenom. That's going to be fun. Oh, very yes. cool. And in, in Orlando, our band is going to be... Mr. Plutus Awards, Harlan Landis, my co-host on the Money Tree podcast, Miranda Marquette on tambourine and playing the guitar will be Andrew Wang, who we saw in Philadelphia mm -hmm. from Inspire Money. They're going to be our band. So we, these are these are all coming around. All three locations are going to be a lot of fun. And uh, all we got to do, OG, Come is, on down. Yeah, we have to sneak out. We can't let mom know. Mom will never mm -hmm. want us going around the country. She gets worried. So, well, especially with that uh, rickety van. 
Some people are worried we're not going to get the show started. We've got a lot to get to today, so let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Financial Planning, financial-planning.com, a website for financial planners. Some crazy naming of that site going on there, OG. This is written by the Barry Ritzholtz. Active money management isn't going to disappear, it says in this Bloomberg Opinion piece. There's a line of argument in the financial press that suggests that active money management is dying, a victim of high fees and underperformance versus low-cost investing that captures average market returns. Newsflash, this is anything but the case. Active investing still dominates asset management around the world, and less than 18% of the global stock market is owned by index-tracking investors, according to a 2017 BlackRock analysis. That's a modest share and a clear sign that active asset management still dominates the industry. Despite my being mostly in the low-cost passive camp, I have not been convinced yet by one of my favorite researchers, Jim Bianco, that active asset management is, quote, no longer a viable business model. Indeed, there are many niches where active managers can prosper, The history of investing is, by definition, the history of active management for the simple reason that indexing didn't exist until relatively recently. If we use mutual funds as a proxy, we see that active management was the only investment methodology for almost the entire past century. I've discussed some of the issues confronting active managers recently. It's reasonable to expect active management to continue to morph into something different from what it is today. The question before us is what active management is likely to look like in the future. And then he walks back through, and this is what I like about Barry Ritzholtz, by the way, is some of this thought-provoking stuff that he does. He walks through a few different ways that active management is going to be around in the future. The first one is quant-driven funds. He says the ability to sift through enormous amounts of data to identify where performance gains might be found, has attracted lots of attention. Some call it the future of Wall Street, others the future of asset gathering. Regardless, the underlying technology continues to drive lots of bold and innovative investigation. We see that ourselves, OG. I mean, look at the performance of the Buzz Index over the last year, as an example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these quant ideas, I think, are, in my mind, a big part of where active's headed. That's the part of active that I'm most excited about. The thing that most people get mistaken in all of this argument, and I know Barry talks about it in other pieces as well, it's not that active management is bad. It's that we don't want to pay for it. We don't want to pay a premium for it. So there is some base level cost associated with investment management. And we can argue about what that base level cost is, but it costs money to have servers and buildings and people and whatever, right? So there is some cost associated with that. And I think where it gets confusing is people look at the argument of passive versus active as a cost issue. And it's not a cost issue. You would take a swing at beating the market if it were free. The thing that's misquoted a lot is when people say, well, you can't beat the market. No, not true. People beat the market every year. 20% of the people do, or 15, depending on what time frame you look at in the past. The problem with active management is that you can't predict those outperformers in advance. And therefore, if since you can't predict them in advance, why do you want to pay 
10, 15 times as much to do so. So people fall back on this. Well, passive is nothing more than, you know, you can't beat the market. So why try? No, it's the passive investment model works because of the cost structure. And and once there becomes a threshold of low cost active stuff, especially some of these new things like using technology, I think that's probably where it's headed. The third thing on his list goes right to kind of what you're talking about and also what I think we need to get rid of. He says, number three is high active share portfolios. This makes sense, but he's going to talk a little bit here about what needs to go. If you want your portfolios to beat the market, then they should not look like the market. Many people have argued this point, but none more eloquently than the legendary Bill Miller. His run of 15 straight years of beating the S&P 500 is one of the most famous investing streaks of all time. Miller argues that investors have figured out that 70% of all active managers are, quote, benchmark huggers. And that's who we need to get rid of. If you want the benchmark, go hire the benchmark. Just go get it. Right. And the bad news is, is why are managers benchmark huggers? Two reasons. Number one companies know that a lot of the media focus on the benchmark and how they do against the benchmark. And for quite a while there, before the rise of ETFs, it was far easier to just lose to the S&P by a few points and keep your job than it was to go do anything daring. So companies, through their pay structure to their managers, kind of created that problem. But the second one is also mediocrity once again. Hey, if I'm, if I'm mediocre and I don't take any risk... Maybe people will stay around and th- those people have got to go because indexing is going to beat the, and this is, this is purely what people don't want when they get active management. I read uh, something on Twitter came up a couple of days ago about a fund. I'd never heard of it, but apparently a lot of other people had. It is an actively managed fund managed by a person who is aggressively as possible predicting the next market crash and has for the last decade. So you can imagine if you're investing like the next market crashes around the corner, your performance is not going to do well. And so this fund's performance has done very poorly and has gone from, I guess the high watermark was about $6 billion in assets down to about 300 million or 500 million in assets over the last decade, which is a boatload of money. And the funny thing about all of this is if you look at the history of the fund, it's actually almost exactly back to where it started at 20 years ago. And somebody did a study and said that the fund had produced $450 million of fee revenue over the last 20 years. And in roughly 20 years, it hasn't moved, basically. And it's down from a high watermark of $6 billion down to $500 million. But here's the stunning thing out of all of that. The cost structure in that, the explicit cost, and there's a whole bunch of implicit costs that you don't actually see, the explicit costs are a percent and a half. And so you do the math on that and go, well, there's $500 million being charged at one and a half percent. They have no incentive <laughs> to do anything different. Right. They're making seven, you know, what is that, seven and a half million dollars a year? We're getting our butt kicked and we're making seven and a half million dollars a year. Yeah, all the way to the bank. Why would I change? I'm cool with that. But there is a side of the equation, too, that says sometimes if you're going to miss or if you're going to bet, and I think this is your point and maybe Barry's point, too, is if you're going to bet, you got to bet. 
So you get rid of that kind of middle ground people. And if you're going to make a swing at something, think about if you watched the movie The Big Short or you read the book about the hedge fund traders that went, yeah, this is going to happen. And they lost their butts and lost their butts and lost their butts and lost their butts, kept on getting margin calls and kept, and they went, we are doubling down on this because we know this is going to happen in our soul. And eventually they were proved right, you know, after a lot of consternation, of course, that's illustrated in the movie and in the book. And so the future of active investing, I think, is more stuff like that, asymmetric risk reward type things where I'm going to put up, you know, 10% of my portfolio for a million dollar payday as opposed to put up 10%, you know, put up $100,000 in my brokerage account for my la 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 9.8% S&P return. Active managers have been portrayed as people who can't beat the market, I think, far too much. I think the issue isn't can they beat the market? I think the bigger issue is how they're paid. Things like you're talking about about hey, people stick around if I'm mediocre, big deal, you know, atrophy in the investment process, fear of being... Well, there's inertia, right? I mean, how long, how hard is it to move your brokerage account and, well, and back before, know, change funds? And- yeah, and back before ETFs came around, remember, and you may not, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were a bunch of shareholder lawsuits when people got their butt kicked by the S&P 500 or got their butt kicked by their index, mm-hmm. which also helped create benchmark hugging. These big, huge prospectuses are there for a reason. It's because people sued when things didn't go their way, which made management firms afraid to do things differently. And I think that they're going to have to take those handcuffs off of these active managers to let them go do what they're paid to do. Uh, third one on here is, and it is factor investing. We talked a little bit about this from smart beta to the traditional fama French models, The academic literature on the topic of market performance implies a series of selection factors that drive portfolio returns. Investors can purchase systematized versions of fundamental-based indexes, or as Cliff Asness of AQR Capital Management's noted, factor-driven strategies. These tend to do as well or better than traditional stock picking and typically at a lower cost, not quite indexing but not quite traditional active management either. Barry kind of talks around factor investing a little bit. I know we can't do this in two sentences and do it much justice, but can you kind of shine a little light on what the hell he's talking about, OG? This is really the crux of how we manage portfolios. It's based on all of the academic research up to this point, which is kind of interesting because if you talk to the people who produce this research, somebody like Professor Fema at the University of Chicago, he would tell you that just because all of this is transpired over the last hundred years of data and they've got all these models that say small companies do better than big companies and lower price to book companies do better than higher ones and profitable companies do better than unprofitable ones and those sorts of things. He would be the first person to tell you there's no guarantee that this stuff works in the future. We can just say that these are the uh, characteristics of certain investments that have had a higher than expected return. And so it's a little bit of a balance between the best of both worlds, I think. And like I mentioned before, it's not about not beating the market because we, who doesn't want to do that? You just don't want to do it at 15 times the cost of the S&P you know, to, to go buy an index fund. So we can try and we'll be successful sometimes and unsuccessful other times. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what funds you pick and it ultimately doesn't matter what the costs are and all that sort of stuff. Really, what really matters is 
doing the right thing along the way associated with your financial plan. You still have to save money. You can't cost control your way out of a poor savings pattern. And you can't cost control or index your way out of bad investor behavior, like buying and selling and that sort of thing. There's two more in here that uh, I'll link to in our show notes, but Niche Alpha is another one, which I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. And also ESG, lots of, lots of big movement in impact social type investing. It used to be, I remember when I was a financial planner, this was like the backwoods. This was the backwater. You didn't want to invest there. Yeah, you'd roll your eyes there. Yeah. yeah, and now it's so niched down that instead of getting this pot of things that may or may not align with your values, now because you can niche right down to the impact that you want to have and just get that piece, a lot of these people, I mean, we've had some of them on the show, right? We just had Eddie Lauren on the show with what he's doing in real estate. Uh, we had the people at Swell on. Because you can now take tweezers out and pick the impact you want to have, much more likely that you'll get something that meets your goal and isn't watered down by all these other all these other things that you have no interest in and number two, aren't making any money for anybody. I'll link to those in the show notes at stackybenjamins.com. Our second piece here comes to us in the Wall Street Journal. Oh boy. This piece is written by Ann Turgeson. 401k or ATM, automated retirement savings prove easy to pluck prematurely. Mm. Yeah. Some workers are finding it hard to ignore the money they're supposed to be setting aside for their golden years, this piece says. The retirement savings made possible for millions of Americans thanks to automatic enrollment in 401k style plans is proving to be an alluring pool of money for workers to borrow from or cash out when they leave a job. The findings from academic economists known for their work on retirement savings plans answer a question that has long concerned employers that put workers into 401k plans and give them the option to drop out rather than requiring them to sign up on their own. Will auto-enroll workers treat their 401ks like automated teller machines? Which is interesting. Yes. But we thought that letting people opt out and making it mandatory, hey, this is just a piece, this will increase the savings rate. Let's read on. It does. Yes. The answer according to the study is yes, but not to the extent that the workers spend all their gains from auto-enrollment. Within eight years of joining a 401k plan, the results indicate that automatically enrolled workers would draw nearly half of the extra they managed to save compared with workers left to sign up for the retirement plan on their own. So even though way fewer people, and I think this might be a little misleading, way fewer people will sign up. If they sign up on their own, the people who sign up on their own are much more likely to leave it alone. And if you're auto-enrolled, people take out half of what they made. Yeah. Well, I agree with you on this. This is going to be a little bit of uh, bias in the research because clearly the people that didn't want to enroll had other uses for the money. But it's doing some good, I guess, right? So is it still some silver lining there that... Maybe it's okay that they take out some of their gains. At least they've got some gains to take out. Right. The money's there when they need it. It's a horrible place to save a cash reserve, your 401k. It just, it's a rotten spot, but hey, it's better than nothing. It's kind of like when we talk to people online about target date funds and how bad most of them stink, what's the reaction we always get from people? Well, it's better than nothing. True. Same thing here. At least you have the money to go get it. But holy cow, when I was a financial planner, running some of these small machine shop, simple plans and simple 401k plans, just 
a pain because my staff would field so many calls from people that would accumulate $200 in their 401k and call to take it back out a couple yeah, weeks. How do I get that out? Immediately. Well, now they have the restrictions that you really can't do that, but nevertheless, it's pretty frustrating. I like this quote, OG, from Brigitte Madrean, a co-author of the new study and an economist at Harvard University. She says, thanks to auto-enrollment, we figured out how to get money into the retirement system. Now we need to think about how to keep that money in the system. What do you think that is? Do you think it's just education? No, because I'm pretty sure that people know that it's a bad idea. So I'm not sure that education will do it. Do you think it's setting up the whole picture, starting with a better foundation? Maybe solving the debt problem first before you put a lot of this money into the 401k? Well, one of the things that we used to do or still do, I guess, when working with small businesses and setting these types of plans up, and I know you used to as well, is provide kind of a more comprehensive solution for the business owner and their employees. Because at the end of the day, to your point, you're trying to address this you know, really big problem, but not the underlying symptoms of it. It's not about necessarily saving or not saving. And I bet that we could look at all that data of the people pulling the money out of the plans and find out that they're not using it to buy Ferraris. You know, they're using it for life needs. And so if we can address that kind of foundational stuff at the very beginning, uh, there's a greater likelihood, I think, of of not uh, mucking it up uh, longer term. I'm excited about us moving on, though, to the next lock that needs to be picked. We'll also link to this in our show notes at stackybedjamins.com. I think the lesson here is, number one, 401k, still a bad cash reserve. It is better than nothing. But um, uh, to OG's point, working on that foundation first is hopefully better than taking the money out of the 401k. And then active management, there actually is a heartbeat there, OG. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited about this next guest who is upstairs talking to mom. He became an entrepreneur in 2003 right out of college with just $1,000 in the bank. He went the opposite way of many people who go out and get a job right out of college. He said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur from the very beginning. He's built up a nice empire of real estate in the Clemson, South Carolina area. I'm so excited to have him here. Let's say hello to Chad, a.k.a. Coach Carson. And coming down to the stairs to the basement. So happy we finally got this dude on. Chad, a.k.a. Coach Carson. How are you, man? Oh, I'm doing great, Joe. This is awesome to be in the basement. I, I mean, this carpet is, is awesome. It is fluffier than people think it is. Like, it's it's spongy. Yeah. I mean, is it okay that I, I came in barefoot? I just, I'd, I'd heard about it, so I wanted to make sure I, I felt it. Mom would get upset if you wore your shoes down here, so I think we're, we're better, <laughs> better off with you barefoot. Good. How'd you get the nickname Coach Carson? Well, I played football back in the day, like 45 pounds ago for people who are trying to imagine what I look like. I'm like a little skinny guy right now, but I used to have muscle. And uh, when I played football, I always loved, you know, those good kind of old school coaches who kind of cared about you and were trying to help you. And um, I think about John Wooden for anybody who knows old school basketball, like this, this coach who's just focuses on the fundamentals and cares about his players. And so when I started thinking about teaching and doing some blogging online, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to my sports roots and I'm just going to take the name Coach Carson. Fundamentals of real estate coaching. I love it. Yeah, that's it. Well, well, let's dig into your story because I've never met somebody 
who graduates from college. And I guess everybody else in school is lining up for the corporate gigs. What makes you decide right out of college, you know what, <laughs> screw all that. <laughs> Yeah, I thought I would eventually get in line, but I, I thought, you know, I'm just going to delay it. I'm, 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 I was a biology major actually in college, and I played football, as I mentioned. And so it was sort of like the med school ladder and go become a doctor for the rest of my life. Or I also had some kind of Wall Street sort of opportunities and thought I would go do that. But both of them, I was just worn out from playing football. Actually, I just worked my tail off for so long that I said, I'm just going to take a break. And my father, I was just fortunate enough, my father had rental properties growing up. And so I just sort of knew in the back of my mind that there's this entrepreneurship thing and it's possible. And, and so I started reading some books off his shelf, just sitting at home, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life at this point and said, you know what? I don't have anything to lose. I own my car. I don't have any college debt because I got a scholarship. I'm just going to go for it. And worst case, I'll sleep in my Toyota Camry from 1995 with cloth seats in the back. And I'll eat some ramen noodles. Like I just got out of college. I can't screw that up. And so I decided to to just to go in to try to make money flipping houses and being a real estate entrepreneur. But it seems like that's the harder option. I mean, just thinking about it, it seems like the nine to five is kind of more of the gravy train. And you're like, no, I'll sleep in my Camry. This will be better. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was the excitement of it. And I've mentioned this to a lot of people, but I think that the idea of just having flexibility and freedom, you know, coming from college and I just had this, this routine schedule where I was playing football. And to be honest, like I was, I was a pretty good student. And so I didn't really need a lot of help with my classes, but a lot of the football team, they're very organized about making sure guys go to class and here are these meetings to learn how to study and organize your notebook. And I was just kind of sick of it. I said, this is like a corporate environment. I don't, I don't need meetings anymore. I don't need any of this stuff. I just want to do my own thing. And so it was sort of a short-term impulse, but as I got the taste of being an entrepreneur a little bit, it was really scary. Like I don't have a paycheck coming in. This is kind of crazy. But on the other side of that scariness was, it was really exciting. And so I just thought this could be fun. This is sort of like the challenge of sports or climbing a mountain or doing something that's kind of crazy, but it's got a, a peak that you can get to. And that's kind of fun. And I think I just saw it like that, that let's just go for it. The first couple of years weren't very easy for you. Tell me what the initial strategy was. Right. So, you know, getting out of college and being a biology major, I really had like zero, <laughs> zero financial sense. I couldn't go borrow money because I didn't have a job. So really the only thing I had to bring to the table was I had a lot of time and I had a lot of energy and just enthusiasm and willingness to learn. And so I picked up on that one little strategy that I'd heard about where if you have all that energy and time, you could go find more experienced people, more experienced real estate investors in this case, who do have money and who do have, uh, don't have as much time as I do and team up with them. And so I became like the, uh, we call it in the, in the South, like a bird dog, like yeah, somebody yeah. who goes out and sniffs out deals for other people. And then when I find a deal, like, I don't know what to do with it. I can't get this bird, but I'm just going to point at it. And so I would go point at, at these deals, these real estate deals. Hey, here's a fixer upper house that you might be able to get really cheap. Uh, do you want to buy this? And and so I would make a little small fee every time I pointed out a deal for my first year. And that's how I got started. Is that how you found your investing partner? We actually knew each other in college. Okay. So there was kind of a precursor to that. Uh, the, the bird dog thing was just my way to sort of get in the business and learn it and make a little bit of money. And then the second year of my real estate career, I went back my business partner who just was a friend. And we both talked about real estate and went to a class together and we decided, you know what, this, let's kind of team up because neither one of us have a lot of money, but we do have time. And so we can, we could team up and I'll do part of the business. You do part of the business. And we just sort of grew together. We're 16 years later, we're still, still in business. We're and, still having fun. And the initial business, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was flipping houses. 
Yes, all 100% flipping. So I, I was basically just trying to make money, put food on the table, and which is really not, they call that real estate investing, but it's sort of a misnomer because it's just a business. It's just an, you know, it's like Walmart has a bunch of bunch of small inventory. We just had really big inventory. We had these houses, and my job was just to go basically be a buyer, like go find deals at really good prices, typically fixer uppers, sometimes foreclosures. Uh, we did a lot of what's called a short sale, where meaning where at the time in 2003 and four, the foreclosures were already building up up to 2007. And so we would go negotiate with Bank of America and Chase Mortgage and all these and, and try to get the price at a lower price than what the mortgage balance was. And in many cases, they said, yeah, let's just unload this property. And so I would do all that work on the front end. And sometimes I would pass it on to another investor, like my bird dog career. But eventually, after one year, my business partner and I decided, hey, we could we could buy some of these and get some money. We had to borrow. We had to use leverage. We used some money, and we would then flip the house ourselves and make a bigger profit margin. And that was pretty much what we did for the first two to three years. How did you get your first loans when you were a kid right out of college to do your first deals? Yeah, um, it was a little – had to be kind of bold, <laughs> but – the uh, w- one part of it was I-, I couldn't really go to the traditional route. I just knew that because I talked to some mortgage brokers and they said, you know, you're basically unemployed. Sure. Like you, right. I, I know you have a business and an LLC and all that, but you, you don't have and you made A's in college. But that, that doesn't really help me here. So what I had to do is be a little creative. And so I went to the same people who I was bringing deals to those uh, those experienced investors. I went to them and said, you know, I think I could find deals. I could manage them. I could make money on them is there any way you could put up the money and I'll bring the deal and put all the energy up and we find a way to split the profit somehow. Got you. And it was just as simple as that. Like it started off as sort of a money partnership, but it, it very quickly evolved to where just to keep it simple, the money people would just loan me the money and they would say, all right, here's a hundred thousand bucks. I buy the property. That'll give you enough money to buy it and fix it up. And I would pay them at that, in that time, 10% interest. I paid them a pretty high interest rate. Yeah. So they made interest. I made money and we kept on going. How did you initially find these partnerships? Because I like this idea that like anything else, it's who you know, but how did you identify these are the real estate investors I need to be associated with? Right. Yeah. My very first one was a professor who I had in a class and I was just auditing a class basically at, at Clemson. I was a biology major and I said, you know what, I'm getting into business. I better go figure something out how this business works. And so I sat in a business management class and the professor started talking about real estate sort of as examples. And my ears perked up and said, oh, wow, that's interesting. Let me. And so after class, I just went up to him and said, yeah, I'm, I'm reading a book on real estate. I'm really interested in it. Do you mind if I you know, take you out to lunch or ride around with you? And he said, sure, meet me tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. And he did this big circle around like the two counties where I live, Pickens County and Oconee County. And he looked at properties and you know, looked at his deals and looked at other deals and talked to bankers. And I said, is this what you do all day? He said, yeah, this is pretty much what I do all day. I said, I, I want to do what you do. That's cool. <laughs> So that was that was how we got started. And so I guess the point about how do I get the money, like it didn't start me asking for money, but it started building relationships and just being a student and asking questions and being humble enough to just to learn. And then over time, though, as I started talking to him about, hey, I need money to buy some deals. He said, well, I've got some money over here. I've got a line of credit. I've, and eventually I taught him something. I, I learned that you could use a self-directed IRA. He had a, a few hundred thousand bucks in an IRA and some of it he had in the stock market, but he wanted to put some in real estate. And so I, I learned that he could loan me some of that money um, using his IRA. You know, not a lot of people know that. And so 15 years later, he's still loaning me money. He's set up a trust for his granddaughter and we've worked together for a long time. 
leave it to you though, to bring up the concept that takes us a whole nother show to explain how that works. <laughs> Thank you very <laughs> I'm much. I'm sorry. Yeah, focus. focus. <laughs> Consider that can of worms open, guys. No, that's it. But, but it is cool. All the things that people don't know that you can do. But also I wanted to ask about starting with flipping. You ultimately also had buy and hold properties. Which one do you like better? I like the buy and hold. And I, I, I compare it to, if you think about like farming, and I'm not really a farmer, but I think it's a great analogy. When you flip houses, it's sort of like growing an annual crop. Like, I don't know if you could grow corn or something. And every year you have to plant it. Every year you have to harvest it. You know, it's great. You can eat it. It, it puts food on the table. But what I really love are the fruit trees where you plant an apple tree and, you know, a, a buy and hold is basically an apple tree and it takes years. It, it doesn't make any fruit the first two, three, four, five years. It actually, you have to feed it. You have to water it and fertilize it and do all that. But eventually you have this nice, beautiful orchard that produces food without a lot of effort on your part. You know, there is still some, you know, some little bit of effort here and there, but that's why I love buy and hold. And that's, that's pretty much what I do now. You know, we do some flips here and there, some little developments, but my love is buy and hold because it helps you transition from that kind of nine to five grind hustle kind of thing to where you can eventually have the money just consistently coming in and rental income is really the only way within the real estate world to do that. I wanted to ask about the name of the book as we dig into some of the the people, the characters <laughs> in, in the <laughs> book besides you, some of their stories, because I find that all interesting. But the book is titled Retire Early with Real Estate, yet you don't seem to be a guy who really is interested at all in retirement. Yeah. So part of the goal of this book, I mean, retirement's in big letters on the front, is to reframe or rebrand retirement. And so retirement that I'm talking about is basically just the point where you don't need to work for money. So it's a very specific financial definition, meaning you have assets that produce enough income and or you have the assets to live off of instead of having to go work the nine to five job. Now, on the other side of that, though, something I'm very passionate about is using that time to do whatever matters to you. That's such a personal thing. Like I love listening to stories from other people who when you mention retirement and you ask, well, what would you do if like, money wasn't an issue at all? Like, What if you had income coming in every month? And it's, you know, goes the gamut. There's people who said, well, I would work the same job, but I would work two days a week. There's other people who said, you know, I would go home and be full time with my kids, which I have a five and a seven year old and I can totally get that as well. Some people would travel, some people would start a new business. And so I think a big part of this, there's a lot of mechanics in my book about how to do it with real estate, but I want people to like dream about that and say, you know, what would I do if I had half of my income from my job taken care of three quarters or all of it? Like, what would I do at 40, 50 years old when I had a whole nother lease on life, when I could just do whatever else I wanted? And I, I love that idea. And I'm, it's something I'm trying to get more people to, to buy into. What's your portfolio look like now? My business partner, the guy I talked about earlier, the two of us have 90 units. When I say that, that means, you know, when we talk about units, that's front doors. So like some of those buildings are 12 units. Some of them are fourplexes. Um, some of them are single family houses. A couple of them are mobile homes. <laughs> so we've got a variety of types of properties, but that's, that's what it looks like. And they're all in a little small college town or outside of a college town in Clemson, South Carolina. So, so you keep them fairly concentrated. You're not looking all over the United States or all over the world. I'm not, no, I'm a, I'm a local guy and I'm fortunate enough to have pretty good deals where the numbers make sense in my backyard. And so I've, I've had no reason to explore out. Um, although going forward, I think kind of a long-term wealth building strategy for me is to diversify more location wise as well. And 
possibly just, you know, I'm an index fund, be passive kind of guy, my 401k. And so I like diversification as well, but I, I sort of took the, you know, the Warren Buffett advice of saying you can either be hundred percent diversified, or you can just like watch your eggs really closely and like know your market really well. And I think that's, you can do that with real estate. I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of other businesses and other investments, whether you can really know what's going on, but real estate is very intuitive and we know why people rent real estate, why people buy it because we do it ourselves. And so I think it makes sense for somebody to go in your backyard if the numbers work and analyze properties because we we know what a good neighborhood is. Multi-unit, do you see yourself heading that way more in the future? I don't think so. No, I, I really like the small residential stuff. And I sort of look at like like a chessboard. Um, if your portfolio is like a chessboard, I like to have a lot of small pieces that are more flexible. You know, if I have 90 units and it was all one 90-unit building, it's kind of hard to move that behemoth of a chess piece around as opposed to if you have a pawn here and a you know a rook here, I can sell a house, I can sell a duplex, I can move things around, and it's, it's easier to be flexible. And they're much more liquid because you can sell a single-family house to an owner-occupant or a duplex you know, or a triplex or a quadruplex. You can sell those to people who live there and get a regular loan on them. And so it has sort of that hybrid between investment world and residential world that I like. You also mentioned uh, mobile homes. Mobile home parks are the current hotness in, in, yeah. <laughs> in real estate, millennials want to move to these high-end trailer parks. I mean, some cool stuff going on there. Do you see that as a passing fad or is that kind of where the market's headed? I think affordable housing is where the market's headed and it's just a necessity. There's just, you know, just the, the way society is right now. There's people who can afford really big houses and almost all the new construction just by the basis of economics are going to be higher priced houses. It's, it's really difficult in every single market to build starter homes and make a lot of money on them. And so your builders are going to gravitate towards that stuff. And so I think any creative way you can have to have affordable housing, mobile homes being one of them is great. And it's, you know, it's got its downsides, but I have people who rent my mobile homes who have $1,200 in social security, single grandma. If she didn't have my mobile home for that small rent, there was no other option. You know, she couldn't do it. There's a piece of that where it's in your backyard, Chad, that's got to feel cool. Like that, just knowing that she's your tenant and you're helping yeah. her live has got to feel great. It does. You know, I, I actually talked to that person I'm thinking about a few weeks ago, and she just basically in so many words said, you know, I really appreciate the fact that we have you as our landlord because, you know, she has stories of other landlords who don't treat people well and they don't fix things and they don't care about their tenants. And, you know, we, we do our best. We make mistakes, but we do care about them. We are local. We are real people. If we screwed up, you know, they know everybody in town. I know everybody in town. And so they could go and I have a reputation and a, you know, it's a community. So I, I love the the tangible part of real estate. I think that's a, a fun part. It's satisfying to drive by and look at that and know that you're helping somebody. It's, it's, a, it's beyond the finances. It just makes it more fun. Well, let's dig back into the finances, though. Uh, the part that for some people is less fun, but for you and I here, this is uh, really digging into some of the numbers in your book. Let's start off with you have a profile for Cat Horn. Tell me about Cat Horn and about her story. Yeah, Kat is so interesting because she began her career as a corporate attorney, you know, just like go get her in the big city. I believe she was in Washington, D.C. at the time on the side. You know, she kind of saw that eventually I want to make a transition here. They, they used their residence. She and her husband used their residence to turn into an investment, which is one of the main ways that I emphasize people can get into real estate is actually a couple different ways. But you can buy a house. And you can live in the house, but don't buy the dream house. Like They didn't buy like this huge mansion of a house. They bought a house that eventually, if they were to move out, which they did, 
could be a rental and would actually make sense with numbers as a rental. And so they lived there a couple of years, got their loan. So they have a long-term mortgage and then they moved on and they kept the house and she did it again and she did it again. And there's some variations on that. She bought a, a duplex or a triplex instead of a single family house. And that's in the real estate nerd world. We call that house hacking where like you live in one unit and you rent out the other units. And so while you're living there, you have income coming in and you get to subsidize basically your, your mortgage payment by renting to your neighbors. Which is awesome. I, well, not to stop you, but you know, we had uh, our mutual friend Scott Trench on, and mm-hmm. Scott talks a lot about your two biggest expenses in life are your housing and your auto, and he figured out how to house hack and also then rode his bike to work so he could just completely eliminate those. My, my son lives in a house in Redmond, Washington for his first job at Microsoft, but he's in this lot where this dude who's in his 40s bought two beautiful houses on the same lot, each renter with him, and there's five in one house and four in the other, has like their own master suite. And then they have a common area. And these are all engineers from all over the United States that don't know anybody. So my son Mm -hmm. gets to move to a place where he doesn't know anybody. He gets like-minded people. But the cool thing is this dude is charging everybody in these houses a thousand dollars a month. So he's got these two houses, which are big and beautiful and expensive, but there's no way it's $9,000 a month. So he's not only subsidizing He's making money and he has this yeah. group of friends around him. It's it's an amazing business model. I love it. Yeah, I'm I think like if, if I had a platform or like a, you know, that soapbox that I got on, it was it would be this. Like if you're 20 years old or 22 years old or whenever you get out of the house from your parents, the biggest mistake you can make is go buy some house that you've paid the full mortgage payment on and it's just a house that you sink money into. And I, I'm a real estate guy. Like I like houses, I like properties. But if you can be more creative, if you can go in and buy a duplex, a quadruplex, or a house with a basement, or the the person you just talked about, like if you could have a four-bedroom house and rent out to three roommates, I mean, for God's sake, you just got out of college. Like you do not need a four-bedroom, three-bath house to live in to put it and then go buy a bunch of furniture. If you just make this one decision and do it right, I've done the calculations roughly, and Scott Trench and I nerd out about this kind of stuff, you know, half a million to a million bucks is probably what we're talking about 20 to 30 years from now if you make this path where you don't go buy the dream house versus buying the dream house. And it's, it's a huge deal. You don't ever have to do another real estate investment in your life if you just get your 20s right and do one or two house hacks. I mean, it's, it's a really big deal. My son's all about that. I mean, he studies this guy nonstop. Like, how can I be that guy as yes. quickly as possible? So uh, biggest thing Cat gets right, what can we learn from Cat? Yeah, they chose the future over their comfort early in their marriage. I think that's what I love about Kat. And also, like I mentioned, she was a corporate attorney and she chose a, a business that could also be an investment. That's, that's really what real estate, when you describe real estate, it's, it's not purely an investment. It's not purely a business. It's both. And so she started this side hustle that allowed her to transition into a, a part-time business so that she could stay home with her kids. I think that she is like basically has control over her time and her life. And she was able to leave the corporate gig without having to, you know, make a huge sacrifice because she had started this little side business of real estate. And it's grown into something now that, you know, when her husband quits her job, his job, they're going to have this nice income stream in their 40s for the rest of their life. I mean, they've really set themselves up because of choosing a little bit of so-called discomfort in their 20s and 30s that was not that big a deal. I love how you have all kinds of different case studies and people doing real estate all different ways. Let's talk about Liz. 
next. Liz Shaper, I believe you pronounce it. So Liz is another interesting case. What's interesting is most of the people I profiled in the book got into like rental properties and kind of the core real estate. Well, Liz was, you know, more traditional with her career. She was a actually a commercial banker. So she made loans to people, made loans to small businesses, was very successful in that, did well, made good money. But on the side, she started before she before she left her career, she started making loans to people with her own money. So she knew how to make loans in her business. She said, well, why don't I just use my own money? I, I know what I'm doing there. And she found some of these new platforms where, where you can use crowdfunding, basically. Might, people might be familiar or just heard of that or something, but it's relatively new. But in real estate, they have it where basically you can make these $5,000, $1,000 small loans and, and you basically pool up with other people's money to loan somebody like me, like somebody who's like me flipping a house. You would be, it'd be like Liz and a hundred other people would team up to loan me money to flip my house. And then I pay interest through these intermediaries to Liz. And so Liz was very smart about that and, and did that and had a good, well-diversified portfolio. And she basically was able to leave her job in her early forties, living off interest from loans she made to real estate investors. And the interesting part there for me, Chad, is that she's doing the piece that she knows and enjoys. Like it seems like there's something here for everybody. Exactly. Yeah, that that's not for everybody. Making loans might terrify some people, <laughs> right. and and so that's that's great. And living next to somebody in a house hack, even though that was my soapbox, I understand. Like, that's not for everybody. The, the point is though that if you buy these kinds of assets, she she wasn't all in. Liz wasn't. She had other investments. She you know this was one piece of her overall puzzle. The point of my book really is showing stories of people who took one little piece of real estate. And they benefited from some of the unique parts of real estate, which are it produces income. Like if you, if you want to retire early or have some flexibility with your job, like you got to have income. You got to you got to be able to replace that salary. And real estate, as much as anything, especially with interest rates so low these days, is one of the places you can look at to produce that salary-like investment income. And that's what I've benefited from. That's what Liz benefited from. That's what Kat benefited from. It gives them that base, then they they can then use that base to go explore and do other things. It's so exciting. I love the book. I love there's a bunch of different, I mean, this book is so chock full of techniques and strategies. I like the fact that you go over all these different case studies. It's called Retire Early with Real Estate. Where can people get it? Bigger Pockets is my publisher. If you're in the real estate world, that's like the, the behemoth of the online uh, real estate websites. And if you go to biggerpockets.com forward slash retirement book, that is where, where you can find it. That's awesome. And you know what? If you're on your commute or walking the dog or whatever, we've got you covered. We'll have a link on our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. Coach Carson, thanks for hanging out with us, dude. Joe, this is awesome. The basement is even better than I imagined <laughs> listening to it. So for everybody out there, it's, it's a cool place. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Duggan. After reading some Tim Ferriss advice that the best ideas help both humanity and are big money makers for the founder, I do believe I've found my calling. All of these men burning in the desert, it's unnecessary. So I'm going to bring suntan lotion out there with a nice, healthy markup for old Doug. Everybody wins. If I get this right, next year's event will be called Golden Tanning Man practical and health conscious maybe even life-saving yeah i'm a humanitarian but i'm also a trivia provider of this podcast so let's bring it shall we what do the letters spf stand for on suntan bottles i'll be back with the answer and some materials for this huge money maker in just a moment 
On today's show, Stacky Benjamins is brought to you by The Stacker. What does that mean? We've kind of taken this opportunity today, instead of talking about our wonderful sponsors like we usually do here, to talk about what's going on here. Because man, do we have a lot of ways that you can interface with us. So I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about The Stacker. The Stacker is our email that's always free. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. Mom puts hers on the fridge. Your experience may vary, but she absolutely loves it. What we do there is maybe we'll rant a little bit about things in either the media that have to do with your financial plan. We'll talk about things that are coming on the show. So you'll be the first one to know what's coming up next on the show. I know you want to be the first one on your street to know what's going on. You're welcome, but you got to go to the stacker to get it. Also though, the big deal is our tour. We have changes almost every day and we're going to be putting those in the stacker first. So that's the place to go. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacker. But if you just want to buy tickets so you can join us in Orlando Or how about our show in Kansas City or in Detroit? Orlando and Kansas City, we're going to be at the Improv. And in Detroit, we will be at the Go Comedy Improv Theater in fabulous Ferndale, just north of Detroit. Tickets are only 10 bucks. You get an opening act in each city. We're bringing you two podcasts for the price of one. How about that? StackyBenjamins.com forward slash tour for more. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and you should see the basement. The 20-gallon drums are out in the driveway, and I've run hoses through the window to fill up these little jars. See, buying in bulk and then selling them in smaller increments, that's old Doug's markup. I'm going to get started divvying this goop up, but first, let's get you today's trivia answer. The question was this, what does SPF on the front of a suntan bottle stand for? If you said super powerful fun, I'd agree. But in this case, the people who came up with the term say it stands for sun protection factor. Get it right? No? Well, either way, ask OG to buy you a couple of jars of my exclusive non-Burning Man, Burning Man suntan goop. It'll set you right. See ya! Big thanks to Coach Carson for joining us in the basement. You know, OG, when it comes to to real estate, I love the fact that he got his feet wet first by helping other people. I think there's a big lesson there, especially when you're investing in assets that are as illiquid as real estate properties are, to get your hands dirty first, know the lay of the land instead of just running out. How many times have you seen somebody run out and just buy a house and then later on go probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I know people intimately like as in what guy with two thumbs bought a house probably that he shouldn't have this guy. It's so important. I think to learn from people that have been there before and certainly, and you know what, when I was younger, I didn't want to do that. Like I was, I was a little bit cocky. Nobody does. Did not want somebody telling me what to do. I was going to figure it all out on my own. And now I realize, man, if I would have taken that mentorship, just put my tail between my legs for a little bit. It's so funny. In my after-school activity, I was doing a little bit of work over the last week with new people coming into the activity. You can tell right away which person or which group of people are going to be the ones that are sticking around several years from now. 
Uh, some of it has to do with appearance, physical appearance, and some of it has to do with bearing and discipline. And you could just tell me, you, tell, you, know, you talk to somebody new and you say, hey, this is how I do this and this is why you want to do it. Or, you know, let's talk about this situation and how you'd handle it or whatever the case may be. You could tell the guy that's sitting there with his arms crossed like, yeah, I, I got it. I, I read the book. I know what I'm doing. And then you see him work and you go, okay, I gave you my opinion on how to do it. But I think that make a really good chocolate cake. Don't put three more tablespoons of flour in there just because you really like flour. Like I'm telling you, the cake's really good this way. Obviously, Coach Carson's done a lot of things right. That is definitely my yes. number one. I, I, I agree. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and we'll tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're putting what you value first Making mistakes with my uh, active mutual funds. <laughs> Hate mail at OG at It's your loved ones and your time, actually, but I love that. It's why they've mm-hmm. made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. It's fun talking recently to your own Ben Z if you heard that episode where they now have Haven Life Plus. When you buy a Haven Life policy, all the things that come with it, being able to get access to a will service, a lockbox, many, many other things that come along with getting your life insurance in shape. Today, believe it or not, we're recording ahead, so we have no buddy there, so nobody's taking home the awesome shirt today. Instead, we're going to go right to our letter. And this letter comes to us from Young. Young says, hi, OG and gangs. I have a question regarding stacking gold and silver. I'm from Canada and all my savings are in Canadian dollar denominations. Whenever the price of gold and silver go down on the COMEX, the American dollar gets strong against the Canadian dollar. Is there a smarter way of stacking gold for Canadians? Looking forward to hearing what you think. Cheers. Young asking about stacking gold if you're a Canadian. How about that for a niche question today, huh? Right. I don't know anything about Canada, but um, <laughs> stuff that you can drink when you're 19 in some of the provinces. <laughs> rumor has it. Nope. No rumor. Guaranteed. <laughs> Bigger question that I have is, what are you doing buying gold? That was that. That was my. That doesn't matter what country you're in. Gold acts the way it acts. And what country are you from? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English. No, you don't know what that's wrong. Come on. Coming to America? Eddie Murphy? <laughs> Gosh. No? Since we didn't give away a t-shirt, free t-shirt. Come on. For the first person that emails Joe at stackingbenjamins.com. <laughs> and throws it correct, in my face. The correct movie that that was. You're just uh, dragging my face through it now. I know. Yep. And then send me... Uh, well, no, don't send me anything. Send it all to Joe at stackingbenjamins.com. What country are you from? What do you know country I ever heard of? Anyways, why do you want gold? It doesn't do anything. It's not a hedge against inflation, much to the chagrin of everybody who actually owns it. it doesn't have any real value. It's hard to convert into usefulness. It doesn't appreciate very fast. I can't think of a logical reason to have that. It, it's incredibly volatile. People often. Oh yeah, there, there's a good reason. Yeah, people. I'm looking for good reasons. People often say it isn't volatile, and our friend Walter Updegrave, oh honky, just proved that it's eight times more volatile than the stock market. Eight times. 
And yeah. so trying to put a peg on it, what it's worth today is, is a little difficult. I kind of like what the guys at Kinesis are using it for as a storage spot for their currency because there's something behind the currency instead of just some people in a government somewhere deciding to print more money. Full faith and credit. I mean, there's that. But I think that I don't, I don't understand the allure. I'm with OG. How come? Yeah. Why? Yeah. And the other thing on, on your note, though, OG, it was funny when I was building portfolios for conservative people, we could use, and this is a Canadian thing, a lot of natural resources, including gold and silver, precious metals. And you would use that almost like you'd use a pepper and a chili where you use just a little bit of it and it goes a long way. And what I found was that even though we just got done saying that it's more volatile, it doesn't do a lot of stuff, that little bit versus putting bonds into a portfolio, even though it's more aggressive, that would really, doing historical backtesting, would smooth out a portfolio. And uh, So why not, why not have ownership of the companies that are processing this stuff. Well, no, that's what we do. We just buy a natural. Oh, I know. I'm just, I, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. as opposed to actually buying gold, a natural why not buy ETF. the company that is continuing to innovate and continuing to figure out more cost-effective ways to do things and, and a, continue to have a reason for existing, which is to reward shareholders with future cash flows at an ever increasing pace. The frustrating to me th- that sounds like a way better thing than I'm not sure about way better because I do think that if you look at historical prices on a lot of these companies, people are using it as a de facto placeholder for the precious metal anyway, for whatever they make, for the commodity, which gets a little frustrating. So not many many bounces there. It's funny. Yeah, so young, two great things. Number one, we can't answer your question. Number two, we question your premise. How about that? <laughs> Thanks for writing in. I'm afraid I don't have an answer either because I can't uh, I can't make it make sense in my brain. Yeah. Good. Thanks for the question, though, Young. We appreciate it. Yeah. We, we actually hope that Thanks was helpful, that discourse. Yeah. And for anybody else wondering what we think about precious metals, don't, don't hate them. Just historically, you still have to wonder. It's, it's funny. I was looking at recently a website that was advocating buying silver in your portfolio. And it showed the last six months in silver, and it showed it going down and down and down and down, which is why- Silver has never been a lower price than now. Which is why this piece said, you need to buy it now. And they had the graph. I felt like I was on Fundrise's front page here because I went to the- the, Burn. The the graph all of a sudden goes up, like straight up in the future. Like, look at this. The graph is- Dividing line. The graph OG is way down. This is why you buy it. Like, you know that stuff that says when a graph goes down, it goes down for a reason? The reason apparently is because it's on sale. But it turned out that that straight up that they'd drawn, I actually thought about that the other day and I went back and looked and yeah, none of that's happened. None of that straight up. Remember when, uh, remember when oil was $200 a barrel almost or 170 or whatever? And what happened? Companies went, we should figure out a new way to pull this stuff out of the ground. This is ridiculous. And then it, they did. And they uncovered more and more resource more stuff. and went, well, this is way easier. And oil went from 160 to like 28. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we can do this all day long. It takes us half the time. We get twice as much results. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, everyone who's left a review of our show. It's gratifying to see the number of people who've left a review. This review is going on Mom's Fridge. 
It is written by Snapperhead Scott. Don't want to get close to Scott if he's a snapperhead. Uh, five stars, very entertaining. He says, if you're looking for a personal finance podcast, it's squarely between Dave Ramsey and Car Talk. This is your show. I enjoy the lighthearted approach and look forward to each episode. I like the fact, thank you, by the way, Snapperhead Scott, and mom's putting that on her fridge. I like the fact, OG, we get to cover a lot of different topics on every episode. And if you want more, you know where to go find them. That's our mission here. And I guess the last thing is, is if your mission is to get better financial planners in your corner, OG's firm is taking on new clients to get on their calendar. Here's what you do. Text the word stacker to 44222. And uh, that's a random number I just made up and somebody's going to be annoyed. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Wouldn't that be horrible? It's like that, it's like that um, is that a Geico commercial? Where Alexander Graham Bell is in the uh, oh, yeah. in the box seat, and he keeps getting called. <laughs> he, he gets the phone call. Keeps getting- He's like, "What? No, this is one. I'm <laughs> quite certain you want two. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, text stacker the word stacker to four four two two two, and that'll lead you to the calendaring and how OG's firm works and good things for you in the future. All right, that's going to do it for us. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what did we learn today? First, hoping to get rich on real estate? Follow Coach Carson's advice and know your market. By understanding the ins and outs like he did before your first big investment, you're much less likely to lose money. Second, using your 401k plan as an ATM? Maybe it's time to take a hard look at your budget to see what you can either cut or how you can make more money because you'll never reach any long-term goals by dipping into your long-term savings. But the big lesson, why stop with burning men? My product also helps burning women. I just doubled my market. I am a genius. Sometimes I just got to pat myself on the back. Special thanks to Coach Chad Carson for stopping by. You'll find his book, Retire Early with Real Estate, wherever books are sold. But Stacking Benjamin supports independent booksellers. And if you'd like, use our link stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Powell's to buy it from the largest independent bookstore and you'll also help the show. Thanks. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks also to Joe's mom for pointing out that these people at Burning Man actually want to burn. Anybody want to buy a few big drums of SPF 30 suntan lotion? Like, real cheap?
I went to see a movie this week. By the way, the second without movie, your movie pass, second movie I've seen post movie pass. This is a new movie by a little known director named Spike Lee called Black Klansman. There's never been a black cop in this city. We think you might be the man to open things up around here. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke, Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. (laughs) With the right white man, we can do anything. This movie's full of lines like that where I found myself laughing and I'd hear people uh, around me. I was in one of those theaters where you've got the big wall behind you and the recliners. Older I get, by Mm. the way. I do not like recliners in a movie theater. I'm sorry, man. No. I go. I, oh, I love it. I go into a dark place. I put. Yes. <laughs> right. I'm there to see a movie, not to sleep. And the second you tell Joey he's putting his feet up, bam, I am oh, yeah. struggling to stay awake. And Audi 5000. Okay. You need to see louder movies then. Well, the good news about this film is there's a lot of action and being a Spike Lee movie it ain't easy, OG. And there's a lot of messages in the movie. And so if you're not ready for all of that, you probably want to stay away. But I found this to be one of the most entertaining, difficult movies that I've seen, not just this year, but that I've seen. And I can see why it's already won so many awards this year when it had its big coming out party in Cannes. It won tons of awards there. It's won many awards since then. And this was a movie about a black police officer and then a white Jewish police officer who get together to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan based on a real story, which, as you know, I generally am not all about the real story. But it's, but if this was a real story, this was a messed up story. This was an incredibly messed up story. Is it based on a true story? It's funny. Right at the beginning, Spike Lee has this this line. The screen goes black, and I think it says something like, "This is based on some really." F- and, and the whole screen says that, and then it rolls into the movie. And it's. I gotcha. It is uh, intense. It's fairly fast paced. You're worried the entire movie because the stakes are very high, which makes a great movie. And uh, and I loved it. I, I thought it was a big, big thumbs up for me. But, you know, don't go in there expecting, expecting a lightweight. A little heavy, huh? Little thing. Yeah. You've got, uh, yeah, you've got these two guys trying to infiltrate the KKK. Might come with a little uh, little heaviness. Did you see the preview for the movie with uh, Ben Kingsley in it? Operation uh, something I, or another? I did. I did. Where he's the Nazi in yeah. Argentina. Talk about intensity. 
Man, that's Holy on my radar moly. now. That came out of nowhere. I, I usually kind of keep up on the trailers, like you know, you just watch them on iTunes or whatever. But when I when I went and saw Mission Impossible a couple of weeks ago, that was one of the trailers. And my kid, you know, I was with my kids, and it didn't really match the Mission Impossible theme. There were a couple of trailers like that. I'm going uh, earmuffs, everybody. But yeah, I could tell the kids were looking at me like, "What is that movie about?" Holy cow! You know, some really important historical stuff that you know obviously they'll learn about but uh there was a tra- that looks fantastic it as does well. it did look fantastic and it looked tough like you're not you yeah, know, yeah 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 it's like yeah yeah there was a, another movie and i'm not going to get any of the actors names right but it's about a guy who goes back to what i think was a former boarding school he had been at i saw this as a trailer for this spike lee film black klansman he goes back there and there's a family living there and the house has supposedly has ghosts and he's, he's going through the house and working with the family on some stuff. And he's got some memories coming back and the hmm. ghostly stuff. It looks intense. It looks like another, I, I love this time of year. I'm going to go see mile 22 with Mark Wahlberg and Ronda Rousey. They're going to go blow some stuff up and shoot some people. Well, that's why I want to see the more Meg. My speed. I want to see the Meg. For that very reason. I want to see Jason Statham against the big shark. That just looks so campy fun. I showed my kids the trailer for that, and they looked at me and went, (laughs) I said, don't you guys care about the shark week? I'm like, Dad, that's all made up. None of that is real. And I went, oh, right, okay. But all the Mission Impossible stuff that we've watched for the last month, that's totally legit. Right. No, you say there are no sharks except in our swimming pool. (laughs) Exactly. I remember seeing Jaws because I'm that old. And I remember going to Ramona Park in Portage, just north of my house. And after Jaws, a bunch of people on the little beach. Yeah. You're like, I've seen the ending to this. But it's all these people on an inland lake, dude. It's an inland (laughs) lake and nobody's going in the water. Yep. I would. That's to talk about lines from movies that people don't understand. Going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. How old do you have to be to know where that came from? See, I've, I'm I'm wondering. There's this line that well, it's a, it's a moving line, right? I mean, it's not sure. But we were at game night the other night, and I was thinking somebody said that there was this role in the game called the harbor master, where we're moving boats into the harbor. One person is is the harbor master, and you bid on this role. And whenever we talk about the harbor master, somebody would go, "I'm the key master. I'm the gatekeeper," and immediately. Everybody at the table knows what that is. And you're looking at me. You don't know what that is. Oh, nope. my! there it is. All right. Hey, if you want a T-shirt so we can rub OG's face in it, <laughs> send me that one. That one's going to be easy. First one to send me that one. No, I don't like the first thing because people get it earlier than others. Just, yeah. 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 Well, it's going to be a contest of some kind. We'll, well do it for two or three days and yeah, until yeah. the next show comes. Yeah. And then we'll do it at random. No, we'll just put everybody in just the random me. number generator and we'll do it. But send me Joe at Stacky Benjamin's that one uh, so we can rub OG's face in that key one. Keymaster? I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Are you the gatekeeper? I'm the keymaster. No? All right. Uh, and then somebody... Probably a movie that has been out. It just doesn't involve... Does it have a lot of bazookas in it? <laughs> it does. Or tanks? It does not. There. It, well, there you go. It does have a lot of weapons in it, though, all the way through the I movie. I can tell you how weapons. Rambo 1 finishes out, if well, you're interested. Well, that's the other thing. So then then another guy 
one guy moved into a space on the board that another guy wanted to move into. And the guy looked at him and goes, do you feel lucky punk? That okay. line, I think you have to be even older for. Nah, I don't know. That's than the one I just did. Now, when I tell you the one that I just did, I think you got to be older for this. Everybody one. knows the, do you feel lucky punk? Everybody knows that one. You think so? I don't know. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union can help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Well, if you're thinking consolidation, that's part of your plan. You could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. What I like, you make your plan first and then you use the appropriate instrument to get you there. And Navy Federal has them. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loan subject to approval.